How you guys doing out there? All right? Hey, as uh, E mentioned, we're continuing our series called Living in Babylon today, how to function when you find yourself in a foreign environment or in a familiar environment that is turning increasingly hostile, maybe to you, to who you are, what you believe, and maybe even the God you follow. But before we get into the message, let me just throw this out under the banner of how we might ought to live. I've been hearing a lot of stuff this week on the news, on uh, Facebook, on various websites and such about how Christians ought to uh, uh, not celebrate Halloween. So I'm just going to give you my two cents worth for what it's worth. Take it or leave it. This is not of the Lord. This is kind of my sense of how we ought to operate given what I think the Bible is telling us. Um, First of all, are you ready for Halloween? Any kids? Anybody ready? No? I hope you are and I hope you are participating all right, I got to tell you, the vast majority of the kids and the parents who are going to drop by your homes over the next day or so are not, despite your best intentions, overt devil worshipers. You get that? Uh, and frankly, even if they were, wouldn't it be awesome if you were the kind of person who would make them think the Christians aren't the nutty people that they think you are by actually being friendly? We saw last week in the book of Daniel that not everything has to be something you take a stand against. So go ahead, Daniel says, change my name. I don't care. Uh, Make me go to your weird university and learn your weird incantations, your weird language. I'm fine with that. Uh, However, I'm going to take a stand on the food that I eat because I'm directly obedient to what God says about what I should eat. So we, we can learn something from that. You don't have to be someone who is never for anything and is against everything. Look for ways to connect. It's okay to model Christ, who was always criticized for hanging out with people who didn't go to church. Why? Because he knew something. He knew that the way to actually make himself attractive to people who don't go to church is to love on people who don't go to church. Hard to do that, living in your sacred hole in the ground with your lights turned off, making sure you don't have any contact with the unwashed masses, okay? Nothing wrong with about handing out a piece of candy to a kid, talking to their parents, or rubbing their dogs as they walk by. Nothing threatening. Maybe we have forgotten that Jesus has overcome the world. We have nothing to be afraid of, especially when not what you should want for them is to be with you here on Sunday mornings. Okay, that's my free public service announcement. Take it for what it's worth. Let's pray, and we'll get to our message. God, thank you for this morning. Thanks for those that are here. Thanks for ears that are open to hear. Thanks for your word, which instructs us on ways to live, how to think, how to be, and who we are in you. Pray that we might hear your word, be changed from our time with you and it this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, it is the middle of the night in Babylon the greatest city in the empire that now rules the known world. And in the palace, the king is sleeping. Well, he's trying to sleep. Rapid eye movements are going all over the place. Beads of sweat are forming on his brow. Suddenly, he sets up, gasping for air. He realizes it was just a dream, but it's still disturbing, and he won't sleep again that night. I kind of like the way this second chapter of Daniel starts out. No matter how much money you have, no matter how much power you wield, no matter what you you have as a title, trouble can show up. So we're going to follow this dream 
in Daniel chapter 2 as we read along uh, with me uh, today. You can get your apps, you can get your Bibles, or you can put it on the screen. But if you're new today, here's what we've been seeing. We began this series, we took you back to 605 BC, when the new superpower Babylon sweeps over the known world, beats up on the Egyptians, destroys the Assyrians, heads straight south from Carchemish, and goes, runs right over the top of what's left of Israel, the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin. They ransack the temple, cart off all of the precious sacred vessels, and they take them back to Babylon where they stick them in their temples to their gods. And they also take 10,000 of the best and the brightest from the next generation. The story then kind of zeroes in on Daniel and three of his buddies who are sent to Babylon University to be schooled for three years in all manner of Babylonian culture, language, and all that weird stuff, sorcery, incantations, astrology, astronomy. But these four guys decide that while they're forced to be in the kingdom, they are not going to become part of it. They're going to serve their God and their God alone. And God uses that commitment to begin to move. This brings us now to chapter 2. Here's how it starts. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. The king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. So he gets all of his Babylonian staff together, right, to get some answers. And the task, (laughs) it's precious. You guys can start by telling me the details of the dream I had. Oh no, oh no. (laughs) They protest how unfair this is. They said to the king, oh king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. So he has a dream, and he demands that they tell him what the dream is, and then tell him what it means. Pretty tough gig. But he's grabbed them all, the enchanters, the the witches, all the sorcerers, everybody, anybody who could possibly have in Babylon an answer, an insight as to what this dream was all about. Because in his dream, he sees this giant image with parts made out of different material, and then somehow something comes out of nowhere and smashes the, this, this thing, this image, into smithereens, into dust. And somehow Nebuchadnezzar senses that this has something to do with him He just doesn't know what it is, and he's determined to find out what it means. So he wants no games. He doesn't want to be conned. So here's how he outsmarts them. Don't just interpret the dream. Tell me first what the dream was. Once you do that, I'll have confidence that you can tell me what the interpretation is. So what he hears is, oh, come on, king, live forever. This ain't fair. We got to know the facts of the dream facts of the dream to start, even start. What you're asking for is impossible. Too bad, king says. Do what I commanded or I'm ripping you into pieces and tearing down your houses. And that can't be a good thing for the families either. After the king confirms the orders, he kind of throws out a carrot. He says, if you show me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Show me the dream and its interpretation. So they make an appeal a second time. Let the king Tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. He responds, 
Okay, I know with certainty now that you're trying to just gain time. You're stalling. Because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answer the king and says, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has ever asked such a thing of any magician or any enchanter or any Chaldean. Remember, we are talking about Babylon, the literary, educational zenith of all that is great about mankind, the pinnacle of everything that man has to offer. And these guys say, look, nobody on earth can do what you've asked. And I love what they say next. The thing that the king asks is difficult. Translation, it's impossible. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Might be worth underlining that or making a note of that. No one can do this, O king. Even the Chaldeans say this, except the gods. And they don't live here. (laughs) Remember, we're talking about a polytheistic society, gods all over the place. But king, you just want to remind you, you didn't call the gods into this meeting. You just called us. And none of us can do what you're asking. It is a God thing. And none of our gods are kind of hanging out with us. Okay, that is the wrong answer. King goes on. Because of this, the king was very angry, very furious, and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions, his three buddies, to kill them. Little side note. I promise you that the longer you go through life, and most of you have probably already come to that place at life at some point, you're going to come across things that the world doesn't have an answer for. We'll come across questions that the best minds, the best science, the best uh, educated people on earth have no answer for. Have you not already experienced some of that? When the scan reveals that the cells have come back and are multiplying, where's, where's the great educational answer to what's going on? Tragedies come in all forms and sizes. It's a person you thought you'd live the rest of your life with, but they're taking from you. Where's the answer that the world gives you for that? You've done your best, done things God's way, you thought, and in spite of that, look what's happened. I'm in a hole I can't dig out of. What answers does the world have for you now? I find Babylon has a lot in common with the world we live in. It's a phenomenal city based on all kinds of materialism, philosophy that's about looking out for yourself, get everything you can, hold on to it tight, make yourself great. Don't let anybody take it away from you. That's Babylon, even there. Even when you find yourself doing pretty well, you're going to come across things that happen in life that you don't have an answer for, that the world cannot answer for you. So the best of the best are gathered together, and they'll tell you what you want, O king, and that cannot be answered. What you're asking for, only God can supply the answer. See, it's one thing to go through life with other Christians who have some answers that God gives to pain and death and tragedy, and we still have hope because we know it's not just in this life that we're living for, there's an eternity coming. What we have here is temporary. So even though it's painful, we have some hope and answers. If you are not a Christian, (laughs) where'd those answers come from? They don't have any answers. But if you believe that there is a God that lives among men, that travels with them, you can have hope. 
but that's not the God that Babylon believes in. So sorry, can't help you, don't want to be you. Story starts to change because they come around up Daniel and his three buddies. Daniel replies with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who's the guy that was sent out to kill all the wise guys. He says, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Arioch then tells him about what the king has had, what the king's orders were. The Daniel goes in and requests an audience with the king and basically says, can you give me a little time to see if I might be able to come up with an interpretation of, for the king? I love this. I don't, I don't know why Daniel and his three buddies are not with everybody else who are the wise guys at the beginning, except maybe from the very beginning of their captivity. They purpose not to defile themselves. So even though Daniel was seen as at the top of his class when he graduated, the king doesn't call for them. He calls for his Babylonian cohorts. So Arioch shows up to kill them. Daniel knows how to respond. Uh, maybe, maybe he responds with wisdom and tact that maybe this guy doesn't respond to with the duck face here. I don't know. But Arioch doesn't have to explain himself. He could just kill Daniel outright. But somehow he's got favor with Arioch, so Arioch gives him an audience with the king. So Daniel then goes off to his house and says he makes the matter known to his three buddies. Um, and he says, look, we got to seek mercy from God. <laughs> so this mystery that the king is asking for, uh, we don't want to be destroyed with everybody else in the wise guy camp, so what are we going to do? It says, can you pray? They go, yeah, we can do that. And, and Daniel needs, knows, he's, knows he's going to need some time. Even though he walks with this God, he doesn't command this God. He doesn't control this God. He needs God to respond, give them the answer. If God does this, great, maybe we'll live. If God doesn't, we're going to die with all the other wise guys in the country. And we see the next chapter, and we get there in chapter 3, where we see that these guys really are willing to die. Now, I don't know what you guys are facing, but my guess is sometimes it takes a little time to sort through things, a little time in prayer to figure it out. Do you have a group like Daniel had, by the way? Daniel goes home to three guys. Maybe they're playing Atari, but they're there in his house. Three guys, four guys. He says, we got to pray. Because if God doesn't give us an answer, we are lost. King's had a dream. He's going to cut us into pieces. Would you guys pray? Sure. Yeah, we'll pray. Why? Because there's no other way to get an answer. We don't have the answer. The Chaldeans are right. There's no way to get this except God provide it. So the question is, why is it prayer is always the last thing we turn to? Well, why is it not our first response? We do everything possible we can. We strive, we do everything we can. And when that doesn't work, we finally say, well, you know what? It's hopeless. <laughs> I can't pull it off, so maybe God can. And not just in our trials, but in our successes. God, how do you want me to use the money I'm going to get from this new promotion? How do you want me to use the money I'm going to inherit from my grandparents or aunts or uncles or folks? Prayer is always the last resort for us too often. We live like we're in Babylon too often. But that night, Daniel does get the answer. And watch what happens. Look what he does as he begins to praise God. See how much of Daniel is in this and how much of God is in his response. Daniel said this, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might 
and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. You see it? It's all about God. The only time Daniel refers to me in that whole passage is in reference to how God answered what Daniel had asked. So Daniel goes out and seeks out Arioch, the guy whose job it was to kill everybody, and he says this, don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. So Arioch, I know you're rounding everybody up to kill them, tear them limb from limb, I get that, you're going to turn their houses into rubble, yeah, I, I know the plan's underway, but let me go see the king, because I may be able to interpret this dream. Arioch then brings Daniel in, I love what Arioch says. You have Daniel praising God. Look what Ariac does. He goes in and says to the king, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. Doesn't he sound like corporate America? He goes to the king and says, Oh, king, rest assured, I am awesome. I am so cool. I am wonderful. I have found the guy who can answer your question. When in reality, how much did he have to do with it? Really, nothing. But his little pea brain wanted to make sure he looked great. So he went for it. That is the philosophy of Babylon. It is the philosophy of America. And we're also going to look at the next few weeks. It's also the philosophy of Nebuchadnezzar. Well, why does this dream have Nebuchadnezzar scared so, so much? Well, he's a young king. He's only his second year in reign. But he's taken over this incredible empire that runs the entire world. But what do you do if you have an entire empire? And you've done, conquered everything that there is to conquer. Yeah, you sit around and worry about who's going to overthrow you. You worry about losing your empire. You worry about all the stuff that you've hoarded and all the stuff you've amassed. Who's going to try to take it away from you? And paranoia begins to set in, right? And I had a dream last night, he thinks, that somehow I might be in danger. But I just don't know from whom. I've got to figure out how that's going to work. The king asked Daniel in verse 26, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, no. Well, that's what he started saying. I'm surprised Daniel got the second word out. But Daniel just remembered, okay, I'm about to be executed. I'm going to cut into pieces. My house turned into rubble. But if I can get it done, all this bling is my way, coming my way. But the first word out of his mouth is no. He's lucky to get a second word out as the king was slow on the draw, he goes this, no wise men, no enchanters, no magicians, no astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. In other words, the thing that you have asked is impossible for men. Do you realize that when he said that, he's just lining up and agreeing with all of his Babylonian counterparts? He's let them off the hook. All the Babylonian wise guys who couldn't pull this off, Daniel just agreed with them, indicating that he, Daniel, couldn't do it either. And neither could all the king's wise men. Daniel, how about you just let them be cut into pieces? You get the day, steal the show. Be far easier for you over the next few chapters had you done that. But Daniel kind of gets it. The loving God means loving on people who are your enemies, even weird jacked up ones, even on Halloween. I don't know, but he throws it out there. Then he takes them off the hook. He says, but there is, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are. You see how God 
is introduced by Daniel into the mix with this heathen king. Daniel, can you do this? No, 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 neither can any of your wise guys. No man can, but there is a God in heaven who can. And for some strange reason, this God has chosen to share this with me for you. Now listen, this is so not us. We think that all of our smarts, we think that all of our talents, we think that all of our brains, we think all of our skills are those of our making rather than those that God has bestowed on us. Can you do this, Daniel? He could have said, yeah. And what we want is a boatload of riches and allowed to go home. Maybe he would have gotten it. But that's not what he did. He points everything to God. I wonder why so many times me looks to promote me rather than God. Why is that? Sure, I want you guys to all walk in here on Sunday mornings and taste the Lord, see that he's good, be changed. But I also kind of think that it'd be cool if you think I'm a really cool pastor. (laughs) Why is that? What is it in us that makes us do that? Why in our families? Why at work? When we're put in those moments when something's at stake, maybe even our reputations, why is our natural inclination to go, hey, I can do that. Hey, that thing that just happened, I did that. I made that happen. That was, that was all me. Why shouldn't Daniel do that? I mean, at the end of chapter one, we found out already that he is gifted in interpreting dreams and visions of all kinds. So did Daniel already know he had this gift? Sure he did. But what does he do with it? He uses it to point to God. It's you, God. It's, that's, that was you, God. Oh, that was you, God, that did that. But Daniel, aren't you great in this too? No, no, it's just God. I happen to know him. I happened to walk with him. And he's happened to tell me something to tell you. That is the type of man and woman that God is still looking for today. Someone who gets it, that this life really ultimately is about glorifying God not me. Tough gig, hmm? I find the things I'm naturally good at are typically the things I'm comfortable doing without God. Hey, do you pray before you walk into that boardroom? Heck no. Why? Because you know you're good at that. You know you're gifted in that. But see, that's the secret sauce we sometimes miss. You're gifted in that. Who gave you the gift? Oh, that's right. God did. Hmm. You're simply managing the talents managing the skills, managing the education that God has placed on you. We tend to forget and think that it's ours and our doing. Why? Because we have been co-opted into Babylon. Make me something great. We all struggle with this. How much of our identity is how our children are seen by others? My kids, my stuff, my car, It's all a glimpse of how others are going to see how I'm doing. And the moment we start having kids, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, boy, now I've got something. Now I've got something that can reflect my glory. It's Babylon. But the person that God looks to use in every situation is the person who recognizes God is at work in every situation. Well, Daniel, don't you have great answers? Well, if I do, it's because God has provided them to me. Do you realize when Jesus himself, one of the scribes came up and said, oh, good teacher, what is it that man must do to be saved? And Jesus stops him in his tracks. Whoa, 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 whoa. You're calling me good. Nobody is good 
but God alone. I think if Jesus himself deflected compliments and directed them to God, the Father, maybe we should learn a lesson from him. It's a tough one. Humility doesn't mean we have to be doormats. It's simply recognizing that I am what God has given me and made me and seeking to reflect that back to him is the goal of my workday. For people to applaud me and for me to be great or for using that to reflect it back to God. Okay, maybe a bit of a tangent, but a necessary one, I think. Back to the dream. Here's what Daniel says. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than any of all the living, including all your wise guys in Babylon, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. This is so Daniel. Why am I standing before you, O king? Well, God has revealed something to you in your own mind. And God wants to make sure that you know what the thing that you saw in your mind means. So God has simply revealed it and its interpretation to me to make sure that you yourself know what it was that you had going on in your own mind. That's the only reason I'm here. I'm the two-bit player in all this. The real thing going on here is what God is trying to communicate to you, Nebuchadnezzar. But Daniel, you're in front of the most powerful person in the whole world. Shouldn't you be milking this? And Daniel would say, I may live here. But I'm not part of what's going on here. This is not what I'm about. This is an earthly kingdom. I'm focused on the eternal. Do you see how this whole thing goes to the very core of who Daniel has decided to be? This idea from last week that Christianity is not just a title that we wear because we go to church on a weekend. It's a belief that permeates every aspect of our lives. We have to fight to go against this philosophy of this world that we live in temporarily. And with that said, Daniel lays out the dream. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening or terrifying. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken into pieces and became like the chaff of the summer summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that there was not a trace of them to be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, the king does not reply. He has got to be rocked right now. He's got to be simply in awe. Daniel has nailed what he saw in his dream. So Daniel keeps going. Let me tell you the division. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. I love that. Interesting, right? Daniel's there by himself but we are going to tell you the interpretation. What's he thinking? Was he just so into having this God moment that it was him and God communicating? Or was he throwing back to his three friends in that small group that was praying for him like their lives depended on it because it did? See, the surge did not come up with the idea of small groups. God's had that all along. They existed back then. Are you in a group like that? 
it's interesting, isn't it? It may be very well the small group where the answers that you have deep in your soul will come as you pray together. Here he goes on. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar loves this. Yes, I am the greatest. (laughs) I'm the head of gold. Fantastic. Go on, Daniel. Keep explaining. But it goes kind of south from there. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes it, it shall break and crush all of these. As you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it just as you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not really mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed." nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that the stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke into pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and his interpretation, sure. I love the boldness of Daniel. Boom, here it is. I'll give you some accolades, king. You are a great king, an awesome ruler, but it is because God has allowed you to be that. You will not last forever. After you, there will come four other kingdoms. And after that's going to come a divided kingdom, kind of the iron and clay thing. And that's not going to be able to stand either. It's where we get our motto of having feet of clay. And there's going to be a rock, but it's not coming from human hands. Nothing human about it being cut out. It's a supernatural thing. It's going to blow these other kingdoms completely away. And it is the God of heaven that has shown you this. I promise you, the dream is true. The interpretation is solid. You can bank on it. Now, here's where we get into all kinds of weird stuff about what all these things mean. Uh, You could say, we know this, Nebuchadnezzar's at the top, right? Babylon, silver is the gold. You could maybe put the Medo-Persian Empire because they come and they crush the Babylonians. Then you get the uh, Greeks, Alexander the Great comes and he takes out the Persians and the Medes. Then the Roman Empire takes all those out. That gets us up to 476 AD by the time that's over. But here's what Daniel basically says to the king. When it's all said and done and man has got its, run his course, God is going to establish his kingdom. All the other kingdoms will be completely eradicated. There'll be no memory of them. They'll be gone. I'm setting up something, you you can do whatever you want for a season, but I'm going to establish an eternal kingdom that will never end, will never be overthrown. Everything you have will be crushed and blown away like dust. Doesn't last. Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to have about 70 years of glory, then the Medes and the Persians are going to swoop in. And as great as they are, they will not last. 
Alexander the Great and the Greeks will take over. And as great as Alexander the Great was, he wasn't that great. He's going to be supplanted by Rome. And as great as Rome was, as long as Rome ruled, it will not last. Daniel stands before the leader of the known world who does not believe in God and tells him the kingdom of his God is going to be the only one that lasts. And God is telling you right now, Nebuchadnezzar, so that you can do something with it. Well, Nebuchadnezzar turns around, he praises Daniel, and he praises Daniel's God, but he makes no commitment to that God. He just simply adds God to all the other little gods he has. Now he's got a little dream God he can kind of count on. But he gave Daniel high honors, many great gifts, made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. Chief prefect became the leader of all the wise guys. Daniel makes a request and says, hey, my buddies, the three guys that prayed with me, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, can they be given some responsibilities as well? And the king puts them over all the affairs of the province of Babylon. Daniel, it says, remained at the king's court. Now, we're going to see that that all turns into trouble for him coming up, but that's crazy chapter two. What do you do with this? Three questions to take home and ponder. If you're not in a small group, get in one. Where does your confidence come from? Any confidence that you have in life about who you are, what you do, where you work, how you relate, where does it come from for you? Daniel, as gifted as he was, as smart as he was, and he was incredibly intelligent, finished first of his class, as relationally equipped as he was, and he was, constantly says, my confidence comes from the fact that there is a God in heaven and I know him. Because of who he is, I can and I will answer this dream, but only because there is a God in heaven who does walk with man. Is your confidence in your titles, in your successes, in your accomplishments, in the number of digits you have in the bank? Nothing wrong with titles, nothing wrong with with doing well at work, nothing wrong with money in the bank, but ultimately they're all part of Babylon. Not necessarily good or bad, it's just how you view them. Number two, who is promoted by your life? Who's promoted by your gifts? Who is promoted by your talents? See, the world we live in, Babylon and here, says, look, get all you can. Get it as fast as you can and keep it as long as you can. Welcome to Babylon. God says this, I've given you gifts and talents and abilities for such a time as this. You will take nothing with you except the people that you come into contact with and help usher them into the kingdom that's coming that will last forever. Everything else is temporary. That is eternal. You can build all the kingdoms you want. You can build all the statues to yourself. I guarantee in the end, they will be crushed and blown away. Number three, are you part of an earthly kingdom or an eternal one? So you cannot fully believe that there's a God in heaven without believing that here is a God in heaven who has a kingdom. 142 times, 142 times in the New Testament, it mentions God's kingdom. He's going to set up an eternal rule that will never end. Everything else is temporary. There is a God who walks with men. And in 605 BC, Daniel says, I'll prove it to you. Only God could reveal this dream, Nebuchadnezzar. Even your own wise men said so. And ever since, there have been those who have chosen to step out of Babylon to say, God, with what I am, with what you've given me, 
and everything I possess and all that I can do, I will simply glorify you. I may be incredibly wealthy when I do it, I may be impoverished when I do it, but that I'm going to do it is not in question. I'm living in the temporary, but I'm headed to the eternal. Next week, we're going to see what a bonehead king does with his information. Let's pray. God, it's, it's easy to laugh at Nebuchadnezzar, easy to laugh at the wise guys, easy to do that and not reflect on how flawed we are as we travel this earth, this temporary place that we live. How easy it is to forget that as Christians we have signed on to you as our Lord and Savior and to an eternal kingdom, that everything here is temporary, how often we act like this is it. This is it. This is where it all matters. And this is all that matters. Would you forgive us for that craziness? Would you have us be people that recognize everything that we have, everything that we, where we've been born, the nation we live in, all the things that we have available to us that the, most of the world doesn't have, you've allowed us to have as a gift. What do we do with it? What do we do with it? Who gets the glory for it. Would you make us your people this morning as we take communion? Would you remind us we are yours, we've been bought with a price, your blood, your body, given for us. Not that we just simply live here for our 50, 60, 70, 80 years and then die, but that we might make a difference. Help us to focus on what is eternal, even as we walk this temporary path. The people around us that do not know you. 6% of people in Falls Church know you. 94% do not. May we have hearts that want to reach them in our conversations at work, in our conversations at the store, in our conversations at the gas station, in our conversations walking our dogs, our pets, at sporting events, at concerts. <sighs> May our hearts burn to know that they are going to be with us in the kingdom that will never end change us, even during this time of communion.